ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Yes, I did say Matthew and not 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to do a little, something a little bit different today. Typically, we travel uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible, um, and that's just kind of the style of what we do today. But today is actually known as what's, uh, what's known as Palm Sunday. Uh, and so we're going to do something a little different for us, and we're going to take a look at this significant day in Matthew chapter 21. Really, it's, it's surrounding the Easter season, and so we want to, since it's, that's where we're at, we want to give some time to this. Now, this, this is something that's sort of different for us. I've never preached a Palm Sunday message uh, at the church, and so... You know, this is, uh, this is something that we don't, I usually just go, whatever chapter is next, we're just going to do that. Uh, so that's typically the way I do things, uh, but th- today I thought it would be good to look at, to focus at, at Jesus. Now, the idea of Palm Sunday, it gets its name from uh, when the people uh, are putting palm branches, palm fronds, on the road as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. That's what it's, that's what it's all about, okay? So if you've ever wondered, what the heck does palm... I, don't, I live in Colorado. There's no palm trees. What are you talking about? Palm Sunday. Uh, that's, that's what it's, what it's all about, all right? So when Jesus does that on, on this exact day, that's why this is Palm Sunday. It's the day leading into Passover week, leading into Easter. Now this moment, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it sets in motion the events that lead to his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection next Sunday, which is Easter, right? The resurrection of Jesus is why we celebrate Easter. And this day and the following events are not, not accidental or out of control. Jesus had specific reason and purpose in this moment and in this time. And so that's what we're going to look at together today in, in uh, Matthew chapter 21. And so here's our big idea as we look at this. It's that, it's that the salvation that Jesus provides transcends our greatest hopes. That's the concept that's being laid out for us in Matthew chapter 21. So let's read these 11 verses, 21, 1 through 11, uh, and then we'll break it down together. It says this, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word together this morning, we want to ask for your blessing, ask for your presence, ask for your help. We need you in order to understand your word, to be able to know why you've written what you've written and how we can apply it into our lives. And Lord, beyond just understanding the words on the page, we want to know you. And so God, would you unveil yourself? Would you show yourself to us? And would you cause that presence of God to change who we are? 
that we would be transformed, literally different people. Not because of our greatness, but because of yours. Not because we try really hard, but because we're with you and we are more like you. And so, God, as, as Ephesians says, as, as children, as dear children, we want to be imitators of you. And we know that your word is a vital part of that. And so we commit ourselves to you and to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we're going to break it down into two pieces together, okay? So the first part is going to be verses 1 through 5, Jesus exposed, and then chapter, uh, verses 6 through 11, Jesus exalted. Now, like we said before, I just want to reiterate this, everything that Jesus said or did while he was on earth had extreme purpose behind it. There wasn't a single thing that Jesus did that was circumstantial, that was haphazard, that was accidental or unintentional. Every single thing Jesus did, everywhere he went, everything he said, everybody he interacted with was absolutely on purpose. And Jesus, in fact, describes this of himself uh, and this mentality and direction for his life in John chapter 5, verse 30. It said, Jesus said this, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, when you read this, and Jesus says it from the sort of the negative, I can of myself do nothing is what Jesus says. When you read that, I think often the way we read it is in terms of limitation. That's not at all what Jesus is describing. Jesus isn't saying I'm limited. Jesus isn't saying I can't do things. What he's describing is depth of intimacy. He's not describing inability. He's not, he's not a guy who eventually figures out that he could become a God. That, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus was God. Jesus stepped into humanity and did not discard his humanity but, or his deity, but added humanity to it. He didn't stop being God when he was born. He continued as God and added humanity to that deity and perpetually remained as God. And so, so that's the truth of who Jesus is. And so when he says, I can of myself do nothing, what, he is, what he's not saying is that he could disconnect himself from the Father and, and, uh, and be like that. He's saying, I can't do that because that would be inconsistent with my character. I, I didn't stop being God, so I can't be disconnected from the Father and do whatever I want because I am God. It's, it's, uh, it's like this. You ever heard people ask this question? Could God build, uh, create a rock so big that he can't lift it? And they tell you this, and they think, gotcha. You know, and you're like, I don't want to answer your dumb question. The reason that you feel like that is because it's a dumb question. Here's the answer. It's real easy. No. No, God can't build a rock so big or create a rock so big that he can't lift it. Why? Because it's inconsistent with his character. It's inconsistent with his nature. When we take one part of God and pit it against other parts of God, we create a false God that doesn't exist. It's like, it's like when people say this, God is love. So he has to just accept whatever I want. He has to accept me how I am. He just, because God is love. When we say that God is love and we forget that God is also holy, we create a God that doesn't exist. The God that's all love without holiness is a false God. That's not the true God of the Bible. So we have to understand that we, we have to look at it in, in totality of who the Lord is. You see, when we say God's creative ability is so big, but his also infinite power is so big, let's pit them against one another. That's just not who God is. 
And so, no, God can't create a rock so big he can't lift it because it's inconsistent with his character. Also, God isn't just love because that's inconsistent with his character. He's also holy. He's also just. He's also righteous. So Jesus here is connected to the Father. And in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus comes to Jerusalem on a specific day with a very specific Purpose. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me, if you would, that with this first thought that Jesus is exposed. Verse 1, it says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now, Jesus, he's been to Jerusalem many times before. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus is there often. He just kind of travels to Jerusalem uh, fairly often. He's typically making a trip from the northern region, which is Galilee, uh, and a, a giant lake that's there, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and uh, he'll travel down to the south to Jerusalem. And that's pretty much where he spends most of his time is in those uh, two places. And he's been there many times before, as well as the surrounding villages, like this village in verse 1, Bethpage, and then another village nearby, Bethany. This is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Remember that Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised from the dead? Uh, Mary and Martha were these, were, were these two women that Jesus would often spend time at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's home. That's where he would stay with his disciples when he was in the uh, area of Jerusalem. But this time, in Matthew 21, it's different. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, not just to come, uh, you know, as the times before, but he's on a mission. Here's how it says it in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There was intention that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He was being driven toward Jerusalem for a really specific purpose. He wasn't aimlessly wandering around and just happened to end up in Jerusalem on this day. He knew exactly where he was, he knew exactly where he was going, and he knew exactly why he was going there. Now, instead of going into the city like all the times before, in verses 2 and 3, we see that Jesus sends a couple of his uh, disciples to go get a donkey. He says in verse 2, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied to a colt. Uh, tied in a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. And so here, Jesus, here's the, set the stage. If you were to be in the area of uh, Jerusalem, and if you go to Israel with us, then I'll, we'll be able to stand on the Mount of Olives, okay? And we'll be able to look at Jerusalem. Uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be toward the west, and, and we'll be on the east side of Jerusalem. There's a, when I say mount or mountain, don't think mountain, Okay. In Israel, it's like hills. Rolling hills equals mountains in Israel. They, they have to over-exaggerate it because it's a really small place. Okay, so there's this hill, and they say it's the Mountain of Olives, and then they say the valley, uh, the Kidron Valley, it's like, it's like a draw, right? If you were to walk across a draw uh, between a couple of hills. All right, so that's kind of the idea. So Jerusalem sits on one hill, the Mount of Olives is on another hill, and then on sort of the other side, the east side of the Mount of Olives, there's a number of villages that are there that are just kind of the surrounding region of Jerusalem. So Jesus, as he's traveling, he stops there in one of these villages, on basically on the Mount of Olives, on, on uh, the side of the Mount of Olives, and he tells his disciples, hey, there's another village I want you to go to, and there's a donkey over there, and I want you to get that donkey. David Guzik says this, and as he, Jesus, comes toward Jerusalem, he had walked the entire way from Galilee. I mean, this is a long trip. 
It takes you several hours by car today to travel from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee. And Jesus had walked the entire distance. But now, when he's just a few kilometers outside of Jerusalem, he says, stop, I'm not going to walk into Jerusalem. I'm going to ride upon a donkey. Think about that for a minute. Why is he doing this? Why would Jesus go through the trouble of walking the entire day? I mean, if you're going to ride a donkey or ride some sort of animal, the whole rest of the way would have made more sense, right? But Jesus stops and he says, I want to do this right here. And so he tells him to go find the donkey and he gives him some details. And he actually says in verse 3, hey, if you have any trouble, just say the Lord needs it. It's kind of crazy. It's like if I was to tell you, hey, go down the street. You're going to find a a lifted truck. Uh, It's going to have uh, the... (laughs) Why has it always got to be a lifted truck with me? Um, it's going to have a license plate, CJK777. It's going to be running. There's gonna, the keys are going to be in it, okay? Just get the truck and bring it back to me, all right? And, and you're going to have some questions if I told you to do that. One of your questions is going to be, what about the owner, bro? Like, this is Grand Theft Auto. I don't feel like going to jail. And, and then I'm just, I just say, just tell them the Lord needs it and they'll give it to you. Like, this is a wild idea, isn't it? Like, you, when's the last time you just went and took someone's stuff and said the Lord needs it? And they were like, okay, that sounds good to me. That's, that's exactly what's going on with these guys. You see, sometimes Jesus is going to tell you to do things or give you direction that you just don't understand. He's going to say, I want you to do this. I want you to go this way. I want you to, to take this step. I want you to be involved in this thing. And you're not necessarily going to understand it. Yeah, you'll probably grasp the what. You'll get what it is, just like they do. But the why will probably elude you. That's just kind of the way that God works. You see, you don't necessarily need to know the why all the time. God will give you enough information so that it's not blind faith, because God never calls us into blind faith. But he's not going to give you all the information that you want all the time. Typically, what I've found is God doesn't give me very much information. He just kind of gets me moving uh, forward, and then he directs my path along the way. You see, here's why. Because perfect obedience does not require perfect understanding. You don't need to know. You need to know he knows. That's what you need to know. And if you can trust him, if you can trust his character, then it doesn't matter if you know the details. It wouldn't even change if you did know the details. What if God told you the details and you disagreed with him and you didn't like it? Would you then try to argue God into your way? Or would you tell him, I'm not going to do it? I hope not. You see, the details of the, of the situation, they really don't matter. What matters is my heart. But what matters is my willingness to submit to his way. What matters is, God, are you going to be able to direct my path and to give me Uh, this direction and for me to take it. You see, God's rarely going to tell you all the information up front. Typically, it's going to be obedience first and understanding later. And that's exactly what it is for these guys. God tells them, hey, go find a donkey. And uh, they've been around Jesus long enough to understand when Jesus gives you a mission, you just go do what he says, right? They had seen Jesus do all sorts of crazy things that didn't make sense. And so they're they're not going to argue with Jesus anymore. They're just going to go take care of it and just do whatever he says. And that's the way it works for us in relationship with him, isn't it? The longer you walk with the Lord, the less you question him. The less you need in terms of him to to give you information up front. You just kind of, okay, Lord, whatever you want to do, I'm willing to go forward with you. And so we see that Jesus sort of sets up this situation. But then in verses 4 and 5, something different takes place. Matthew takes a break from telling, uh, telling us what happened to tell us why 
it's happening. It's like he gives us a little bit of commentary so that we understand this isn't just a weird event. This has significance to it. Uh, and so verses 4 and 5 are like a little parentheses in the middle of this narrative. Look at verse 4. It says this, All this was done that, that's a key word, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he quotes Zechariah 9.9, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, the colt, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, here, here's what he's saying. Here's what Matthew's pointing out to us. He's saying that this event takes place because it's essential in the revealing of Messiah. That that's the whole point. That Jesus is declaring himself by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on this day. He's saying, I am your savior. I am God in human flesh. Come on a rescue mission to save Humanity. That's what's being declared. This event wasn't because Jesus always wanted to ride a donkey. You know, he's like, I just, ever since I was a kid, I just thought donkeys were super cool. And I always wanted to ride one. Guys, I think I might die this week. Can you go get a donkey for me? Right? That's, that's not what's taking place. It's not that he thought it would be a great entrance into Jerusalem. It's not that he just didn't feel like walking anymore. This has specific Meaning. Now, he, just think about this for a minute. If Jesus is riding on a donkey, in the secular Roman mind, and I say Roman because the, the people of Rome were the ones in charge, the Roman Empire was in charge during this time, in the Roman secular mind, riding a donkey into the city would be seen as ridiculous. This would be very silly, very, very ridiculous kind of a thing. You see, there is something called a Roman triumph. And in a Roman triumph, a conquering general or a conquering king would ride into the city on a massive white horse. And all of his glory would be displayed and he would be leading a huge procession of soldiers and captured slaves and lots of wealth and all sorts of things that they would bring into the city to display the glory of their victory. And, and that's what would be a Roman triumph. And this is known as... The triumphal entry of Jesus, the triumph of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. And how does he do it? On a donkey. And so in a Roman mind, this would, be, this would be in juxtaposition of that. This would be very, a very big contrast to the way that their kings enter into uh, the city. But not only that, you know, the, the not, it's not a, display, a display of might and power and authority. Uh, but Jesus, notice it says there in verse 5, he's riding on the colt. Right? The, the, the guys were sent to go get the donkey, and there's, there's the donkey, but then there's the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, a colt is uh, basically older than one year, but younger than four years old. So it's a, it's a, a young donkey. So, so picture it this way. This thing, it's, it's like a little bit bigger than a huge dog, okay? Like it's, it's not that big. Jesus' feet are probably touching the ground as he's sitting on this thing. It's sort of a ridiculous sight when you look at it this way. It's very, it's kind of crazy to think about it. Like, why is this happening? Adam Clark says it like this. This entry into Jerusalem has been termed the triumph of Christ. And it was indeed the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur, of poverty over affluence, and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. You see, Jesus was coming as a different kind of king. He was displaying a different kind of thing that was taking place here. Jesus' first coming is on a donkey, 
lowly. Do you see that there in verse 5? Lowly on a donkey. Why? Because he's coming to offer terms of peace. How? Through his blood, his personal sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I'm coming this first time to give you a peace treaty. I have a way to make peace between you and me because humanity is at war with God. God is, God is at enmity with humanity. And unless Jesus' blood is applied to your account, you're an enemy of God. And that's a terrible place to be because you're not going to win. You can't win when you're at war with God. But Jesus and his death and his burial and his sacrifice being for you is why he comes into Jerusalem lowly on a donkey. But this isn't the way he's coming the second time. The second time Jesus is coming on a white horse. And we're told exactly why in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. It says this, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. This is Jesus. And in righteousness, look at he judges and makes war. There is a day coming when Jesus comes as the conquering king, the conquering warrior, to make war. And thank God that he came the first time in humility and lowliness. But the second coming of Jesus isn't going to be like this. It's not going to be this way. Jesus is going to come on a white horse to make war. Not only is this the way that Jesus would enter Jerusalem as foretold in prophecy, but also exactly when Jesus would enter Jerusalem was foretold in prophecy. We, we see there that Zechariah 9.9 is quoted, but there are also, in, uh, in the book of Daniel, we find the exact day that Jesus would come to Jerusalem is prophesied. Now, if, if you're interested in this and you want to dive more into this, we actually did an entire series on the book of Daniel. It was an amazing time together. It's all online. You can check it all out. We go deeper into this section that we're about to, to cover in just a minute. But in, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, there is this prophecy. It's called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. And it's an amazing prophecy. It essentially spans the entire uh, uh, context of human history from the time of Daniel through the end of Revelation, and it's an amazing thing. But we want to point something out here in this 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel 9, 24 through 26a, the first part of 26 says this. Excuse me. 70 weeks are determined for you and your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. But the street shall be built, uh, excuse me, the street shall be built again, the wall and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So we're told the exact time here, and I'll, I'll explain that to you here in just a second. Notice the idea of this, that this amazing prophecy covers so many things, but for our purpose today, it predicts the exact day that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 21. The term weeks is an important concept for us to grasp here. Weeks is a, a word that literally means sevens or sets or groups of seven. And so when it talks about weeks, it's not talking about seven days, it's talking about sets of seven years. That's the concept that's being given out to us here. Now, these particular uh, sevens are, are weeks of years. And in this prophecy, we're told that there are 70 of these. And then we're told at the end of 69 of these is when the Messiah is going to be cut off. 
That that's what's going to happen. That the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Now, a British scholar named Sir Robert Anderson wrote a, a book, a super nerd book called The Coming Prince. It's mostly like math. Uh, so if you're into that, then go ahead and buy that. You'll, you'll love it. And he dives into the details of this. Essentially, what he does is he breaks it down. Seven weeks equals 49 years. 62 weeks equals 434 years. So you put those together and you get 483 years. Now, we're told a very significant detail in this, that, that there's a, a moment when the time clock starts. It's the moment when there's a command given for the, the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now, there were two commands given for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. One was in the time of Ezra for the temple itself to be rebuilt, and Ezra went back to do that. But there was a second command, and that was in the time of Nehemiah. And in the time of Nehemiah, Artaxerxes was king, and he gave a command for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild. Notice, remember in Daniel, the wall and the street would be completed. That's what takes place under the leadership of Nehemiah. So the day that Artaxerxes gives this command is, is very clear in history. We can look at that date and we know what it is. And I wrote it down because I can't remember what it is. It's uh, March 14th, 445 BC. That's the day when Artaxerxes gives this command. Now, here's the thing. Uh, one of the, what uh, Sir Robert Anderson did was he took that date and he started counting days until he would get to this. Now, he used to do this the Babylonian calendar. Why did he use the Babylonian calendar? Because that's the calendar Daniel was working from when he wrote uh, his prophecy, not what's called the Julian calendar, which is the calendar we use today, 365 years. The Babylonian calendar, or 365 days. The Babylonian, years is a lot. Uh, 360 days is the Babylonian calendar, okay? So 360 days, they would have some leap years in there to, to make up for time and all that kind of stuff. So, when, so what he did was he started counting days. I'm not going to count all the days because the days turn into 173,880 days. Okay, so he counts all the days, including all the leap years, and he gets to April 6th, 32 AD, this exact day. This day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This wasn't haphazard. This wasn't accidental. God so told us what would take place way before it ever did. And this gives us such confidence to know, God, you are in control. You know what you're doing, and we can trust you. Nothing about this is accidental. Nothing about this is haphazard. Jesus is being exposed as Messiah on this day and in this way, and it was always God's plan. It wasn't something he reacted to. It was always what God was intending to do. Not only is Jesus exposed, but Jesus is also exalted in verses 6 through 11. Verse 6 says this, So uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, and he, they set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went out went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the disciples go. They find the donkey with the colt, exactly as Jesus described. And they even get to use the, 
the, you know, the line, the Lord needs this. Uh, we're told in Mark and Luke uh, about that, that the Lord needs this. And so they bring them to Jesus. Now, this is uh, this week, like we alluded to before, it's actually the week of Passover. So that's what's taking place here on the Jewish calendar. There's a, a certain feast that's taking place, and it's the week of Passover. Now, every Jew's dream was to be able to go to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It's still a dream of many Jewish people today, that, that they would say as they celebrated uh, uh, Passover and they weren't able to be in Jerusalem, they would, they would end it by saying, next year in Jerusalem. It's just this, I I just so desperately want to go not only to Jerusalem, but I want to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And so the city population would swell. And uh, ancient, an ancient historian named Josephus, uh, ancient Jewish historian, he would talk about some of this stuff. And uh, he, he said that this, the city would swell up to five times more than normal, right? So this is very, very congested. Now, also, uh, this day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's the day for Passover that you would select the lamb that would be sacrificed. And so as Jesus is coming in, he was, he was said of, by John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus was pointed out as that lamb uh, of God. And so Jesus comes in as the Lamb of God, with that mission of taking the sin of the world. And so here uh, on this day, uh, on, in one Passover in this era, Josephus says that 256,000 lambs were sacrificed during one of the Passovers. Not that exact one, but around that same era, around that same time. That's a lot of lambs. Okay, so here's, a, here's an idea of how we can extrapolate that to get an idea of the population, okay? Jewish law would say that you would take one lamb and that would be uh, for a minimum of 10 people. Okay, so we take 256, multiply that by 10. Quick math, add a zero. So that's 2.5 million people in Jerusalem around this time. That's, that's a lot of people, okay? Denver is uh, pushing 4 million, okay? So think about half the population of the metro Denver area and that's, where, that's what's in Jerusalem right now. It is absolute chaos. There's tons and tons of people. So when it says there uh, in verse 8, and a great, very great multitude, this isn't like, you know, just saying words. This is a very great multitude. There are lots and lots of people crowding the city all around. John chapter 1 verse 29, uh, I, I referenced this, but it's where uh, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that, this is who Jesus is. He's this lamb that has come into Jerusalem for this purpose. The, see, Jesus comes the first time as the sacrificial lamb, but when he comes the second time, he's coming as the roaring lion. And, and, and so that, that's a, a, a key concept for us to, to be able to say, I need to have a relationship with the lamb of God because then I'm excited for the roaring lion, not afraid of the roaring lion. I'm grateful to have him behind me uh, and on my side, or better stated, me behind him and me on, on his side. 
And so the people, they, they get together, they line the streets, and Jesus is entering. He's riding this donkey that's like a large dog. And, uh, you know, he's coming in, and people are taking their clothes off, which they're not naked. They're taking their coats off, right, is the idea. They put them on the street. They take branches off the trees. They line the street. All of this is in worship to Jesus. And what they're reciting in verse 9, where it says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is Psalm 118. And so they're quoting Psalm 118 uh, in response to Jesus. And when they call him the Son of David, what they're doing is recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the title for the Messiah. That, that's that's the, the one who is the coming one, which Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ, right? So Christ isn't Jesus's last name. It's his title, okay? So this is, this is the way, you know, so when you say Christ, you're just speaking Greek is, is what you're doing. So you know Greek. You didn't even know that. You knew Greek. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, and this is a description of the one who is God in human flesh who would save humanity. That, that's who the Messiah, that's who the Christ is. So the son of David is a very specific title because David had lots of kids. There's lots of people who could trace their lineage back to David. So why does Jesus get to be the guy who says he's son of David? Why not why not Mary? Well, Mary's not son. So Joseph, his adopted father, why wouldn't he be called son of David? Because this is a title specifically reserved for the Messiah. And then also, notice what they're saying, Hosanna. We sang this song earlier, Hosanna. Uh, and uh, Hosanna is a word that means save us now. They're, they're crying out to Jesus as he's riding on this donkey, save us now. And then at the end they say, save us in the highest, Jesus. They're, they're declaring this need for salvation from Jesus. They saw that Jesus is one who could save them. Not, not only that, but like we said before, they're taking palm branches and they're putting them on the streets. And these palm branches are actually really significant because the palm branches are a symbol. They're, they're used in all sorts of Jewish architecture. Uh, again, if you get to go to Jerusalem or Israel with us, we'll go to Jerusalem, we'll go to some surrounding regions and there's these uh, giant pillars and there's capstones. And in the capstones on the pillars, there are palm branches that are, are etched into the stone there. And the palm branches are a symbol of the power and flourishing of the nation of Israel. They, they actually symbolize, they go back in time to the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's about a 400-year silence in Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And there's a, a, a time in there where there was a family called the Maccabees, uh, and they led something called the Maccabean Revolt. And in the Maccabean Revolt, essentially they overthrew the Seleucid Empire and kicked them out of uh, Jerusalem. And it was an, an absolutely miraculous time where even the menorah during that time didn't have enough oil and it burned for eight days, I think is what it was. Uh, they had enough for one day. Uh, and, so the, and it actually burned for eight days until they could make more oil. And God miraculously caused that to take place and gave them that, that strength. And so what this does, the palm branches are symbolic of the Maccabean revolt. They're symbolic of when the Maccabeans won the victory. And so when they take the palm branches off the trees and they lay them down before Jesus, they're saying, Jesus, save us like they saved us. Do what they did. You see, they thought, the people thought as they lined the streets that their greatest need was to be saved from the Roman oppressors. Those bad guys who've come in, they've taken over. I don't like their government. I don't like their way. I don't like what they're doing. Jesus, save us. And save us in the highest was kick out the Romans. 
That's what they thought was their greatest need. They wanted to be saved from that, but in a few short days, this exact crowd, maybe not the exact people, but the crowd that would, would say, save us, Jesus, would scream, crucify him. The same, the same crowd would just turn on him in just a few short days. He, Skip Heitzig says this, crowds can be very fickle, but at this point, they are recognizing that he's their Messiah, that he's their hope. Now, keep in mind, the reason they would go from Hosanna to crucify him is because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. They wanted deliverance from Rome. They wanted a physical deliverance from the yoke of bondage of Roman oppression. They didn't want a crucified Savior dying for their sins. We have a tendency to put Jesus in this same category. Jesus, I want you to get me my stuff. I don't really want what you have for me. I want you to get me my stuff. We have a tend to value our personal comfort, our felt needs, and whatever we determine as success above all else, and then we expect Jesus to go get that stuff for us. Jesus, here's the thing I need, and since I follow you, you are obligated now to go get those things for me. Be a good Jesus and go get me my things. That's the way we reduce Jesus and try to have relationship with him. And then we say, you know, here's how I'll do it. I'll do it through this thing called prayer, which we treat, you know, God like a pinata and prayer's the stick and we just hit him until stuff comes out. That's, and then we just, it's just the way we treat God. And it's an absolute crazy way to think about who God is. The reality is that he is God exalted over all. And, and when we reduce Jesus to this uh, contractual agreement, then what we say is, I'll give you church attendance and I'll even sing you a song. I'll pray to you. I'll read your Bible, but you got to give me my stuff. And then when Jesus doesn't get you your stuff, then you think Christianity's broken. It was never broken. The God you were trying to worship didn't exist. That's what was broken. Jesus was never there to be your magic genie. Jesus was never there to just go get you your things. Jesus did not go to the cross to make you God. He went to the cross to purchase you from sin and death, to make you his own. You see, Jesus was there to save him, save them, and he was there to do so in the highest, but their current source of discomfort wasn't the highest need of salvation. Maybe that's something that you need to hear today. Your current moment of discomfort isn't the greatest thing you need to be saved from. To you it is, right? I, I, whenever I get injured, that's where all my attention goes to. You ever, you ever have an injury? Maybe you have an injury right now. Something doesn't feel good. Your attention is constantly on that thing. You're, you're, you're focused on that pain. You're focused on that, that stuff. And, and everything in your body is trying to cater to it and to take care of it. And you'll even shift the way that you sit in order to, uh, to be able to help it and you know, try to figure out what to do for it. But your current source of discomfort isn't your greatest need. It's not the greatest thing you need to be saved from. The greatest thing that you need to be saved from is you. You're the problem. <laughs> I'm my own problem. I don't, I don't need to be saved from my discomforts. I need to be saved from myself. And in so, even more than that, I need to be saved from God's wrath against my sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he took my place. That's why he paid my price. You see, Jesus was not there to overthrow Rome. He was there to overthrow the tyrannical ruler of their sinful nature. And that's what he's here to do in you to save you from the tyrannical rule of your flesh, that thing in you that wants 
what's evil. That's what the blood of Jesus does. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says it like this, And you know that he was manifested, listen, to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. Jesus right here, the word manifested means to be revealed. It's like, you know, with my phone, right? Right now it's hidden, right? It, it, it's not disappeared. It's not, go, I didn't make it go away. Uh, it's just not revealed. But as soon as I do this, it's manifested. Does that make sense? Same thing with Jesus. Just because they didn't understand Jesus as Messiah, they didn't know Jesus' uh, position, they didn't know Jesus' purpose, that didn't mean he didn't exist. It just means they didn't, they didn't see him yet. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, as Jesus comes into this city, he's being manifested, he's being made known, he's being revealed as the Messiah, the one who is there to save them. And 1 John 3, 5 tells us why he was manifested to take away your sins, not necessarily to give you all the things you want, not to make you have a happy life. Maybe not. Maybe it's going to be painful. Maybe it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be puppy dogs and rainbows. If somebody sold you that as Christianity, they sold you a lie, right? Jesus said that you would suffer for his sake. Jesus said it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, good every single day. But here's the thing. The, the worst day without Jesus is, 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 uh, is still no comparison. Excuse me. The worst day with Jesus is still no comparison to the best day without him, right? Jesus... My worst day with him is, my only regret in following Jesus is I didn't do it sooner. It's the only regret I have. I look back and I go, why, why would I be so stubborn to not bring myself to the Lord earlier? So Jesus, you know, in this, the entire city is, is filled with intrigue as he comes into the city. And they want to know what, who he is and what he's all about. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the people say he's a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And so here as they're trying to figure it out, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is, I would say that this is the single most significant question that you and I have to answer. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. The most important thing about your life and the direction of it is what do you think about Jesus? Because that determines the course of literally everything. Jesus, in fact, asked his disciples this exact question in Matthew 16, 15. He says, it says, he then asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus is asking us this very same question today. Who do you say that I am? Who do you, who do you think Jesus is? Are you moved to know who Jesus is? The crowds had an idea of who they wanted Jesus to be, the guy that would save them from Rome. The disciples thought they knew who he was, but they completely missed it. And on this day, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a rescue mission for your soul. That's why he came. He didn't come to Jerusalem to manifest himself so that he could receive the praise and glory from the people at that time, even though that was great. But that crowd turned on him in just a few short days. Jesus came to save your soul. You see, this moment would cost Jesus everything. Everything. As Jesus goes into Jerusalem, this is him going into Jerusalem for one purpose. To bleed and die on a Roman cross. 
Not to, not to just go into Jerusalem and to have a good day or not just to go in and be exalted as king, not to overthrow Rome and to establish his kingdom. No, instead, to establish his kingdom within the hearts of humanity through his cross. You see, this moment is what would cost Jesus everything. He was, as Daniel 9.26 says, cut off. But he wasn't cut off for himself. Jesus wasn't executed as a criminal. They, they, there was no reason for him to die. They, there was no, Pilate was trying to figure out what was going on and, and how to let Jesus off, but he couldn't, he couldn't get out of the political nonsense. And yet Jesus went, he was cut off. Why? Not for himself, for me, for you, for our sins. It cost Jesus everything, but it costs you nothing. Well, it costs you one thing, the, the depravity and filthiness that taints your soul. That's what it'll cost you. You have to give that to him. You have to give yourself to him. You have to allow him to cleanse you. And the blood of Jesus is so strong, it can cleanse any and all sin. That's an amazing, amazing truth. See, why would Jesus do this? Because he wants relationship with you and you need relationship with him. That's what it all comes down to. It's all centered around this one concept of relationship. So let me ask you, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Not do you know about him. Can you quote verses and do you, you know, do you know facts and figures? But do you know Jesus? Are you growing in that knowledge of him? Are you coming to know him more? Where do you stand with Jesus? Because that determines everything. And maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus before. And I would implore you, I would beg you, today's the day. Right now is the right time. All that it takes is for you to recognize that Jesus, just like we were reading, came into Jerusalem to save you. That his death was for you. And when you recognize that truth, you pray a simple prayer asking for forgiveness for your sins and asking that Jesus would be your God. And that is the moment you will be saved. That is the moment you'll go from dead to alive. That is the moment that you'll become part of the family of God. And maybe for some others, it's not, that, it's not that you need to, to ask Jesus to come in for the first time. It's that you've kicked him out. You've kept him on the outside. That, that he's sort of, he's sort of uh, you know, that guy that you just keep uh, at arm's distance because you're afraid of what he might do. So I would encourage you, if that's you, that right now is the right time to, to get back into right relationship with Jesus. And it's the same way. Through repentance, recognizing his sacrifice for you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for just this amazing section of scripture that we get to look into and to read to see how amazing you are and the way that you move on our behalf. And we pray that you would uh, pull us deeper into relationship with you. If we don't know you, if those are, there are those who are hearing this who don't know you, God, would you call them into salvation? And for those who need to be brought back, Lord, would you bring them back? Lord, help us to, help us to be strong in relationship with you, that we might uh, experience your grace and your power flowing into us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.